in the pandemic, books were not socially distant from us. It was one of the comforts for a lot of people. There were books to read and books to follow and books to look forward to. But one of the strange things about reading, although it's done silently and it's done alone most of the time, that you want to share books, that if you like a book, you want someone else to read it, that you love the idea of a book that is, in a way, being, being part of the community or part of a community of readers. With that in mind, the art of reading is a way of bringing readers together. It's a way of choosing books that I think people might like because they have given me a lot of pleasure and having a discussion about these books and bringing people together so that we all know that it's not just that reading is a form of pleasure, which it also is, but it's an art. It's actually a way for us to engage intellectually and imaginatively with words, with sentences, with what writers have done. And um, so for that reason, um, I want to share these books that have mattered so much to me. Tom, um, Audrey was talking there about your book, Poetry, Memory and the Party, which um, has given me infinite amounts of pleasure. Things that I didn't, names I'd forgotten, events that I didn't attend, but I sort of felt almost nostalgic for when I read about them in your book. But there are two figures in, in, in your book that are relevant here. Uh, one, 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 one is the figure of Dervla Murphy, and the other is the figure of Molly Keane. There were, there were both writers, there were, there, there were both figures who, see, who seemed to emerge from nowhere to become sort of commanding figures in their area of travel writing in the novel. There's a shadow figure in your book, which is the idea that a young Tom McCarthy might have made his way to Bowen's court in a certain year, had time been different, had she been, you know, had, had the house still been there, had Elizabeth Bowen still been alive. Can you give us a sense of what you would have found had you gone there, what she was like, what the house was like, and what her circumstances were? Well, the thing about Elizabeth Bowen is that, in a way, the house was almost the only centre of her entire kind of psychology, in that all, for her, her, almost her entire life she was adrift as a person, I think. And it was that kind of drifting um, 20th century feeling about her that gives her a continuous kind of modern feel. But I think if you arrived at Bowen's court, you would have found the gardener probably working hard and grumbling that he hadn't been paid well. Um, you'd have found a very loyal housekeeper, cook, um, who, you know, would have been trying to make ends meet on behalf of the, the Bowen family. Because um, I, I, I've never quite understood why she was so badly provided for. Because her father was a lawyer. He was a very, in fact, he was a very important lawyer, Mr. Bowen. He was a senior counsel who specialised in conveyancing law. And he had actually helped a lot of the locals in North Cork with, in collaboration with Canon Sheehan of Donrell to actually settle their title to their lands during the, the transfer of lands under the Wyndham Land Acts. So I'm always amazed at how ill provided she was. Now, of course, he, he, he became ill and um, her mother died when she was young. So she was adrift. So I wouldn't have met a person that was like Molly Keane if I'd arrived at Bones Court. Um, I think I would have met a much more intellectual, um, secretive kind of person um, who didn't know an awful lot about the countryside really, knew a little about flowers knew a lot about flower arranging, 
couldn't probably name most of the trees on her estate, um, unlike Molly Keane. Um, in a way, was a very urban person in an Anglo-Irish house, I think, mm. which made her really interesting and modern. Mm. And it's, it's one of the main reasons why she's really worth reading today. Yeah. And of course, in, in that house, they lived in fear of water because, of course, water was the one thing that would destroy mm. the house. So um, they didn't have, for example, hot water. No. So I love the story of Virginia Woolf coming to stay. And obviously she wanted, being Virginia Woolf, she wanted to have a bath. But she had to go into the village and a woman was paid to yeah. let Virginia, can you imagine letting Virginia Woolf her into your bathroom? Yeah. What, what would you like now? So soap or, you know, so that, um, I mean, that the house itself was stark and pure and, yeah. and probably damp and impossible yeah. to heat. But be a beautiful, beautifully proportioned, yeah. a beautiful um, house. In fact, you could say the house, um, Bowen's Court, you could say that it was actually one of those Anglo-Irish houses that was never finished, really. That even the person who had built it uh, in that generation, and, and Bone herself talks about that in Bone's Court, didn't really have the money left to kind of do the finer touches right. in the house right. itself. So it had its austere lines, a mm. typical 18th century kind of block house. Um, it, it's you know? really grotesque now, isn't it? Oh, it is gone, you see. But I mean, yeah, there, you can find bits of stones in a field. Oh, you can, no? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The remnants of it. Yeah. Actually, not even the remnants, just the memories of it, really, you know. Do you think there was um, a pride, um, I feel there was a pride in houses that weren't burned, that somehow they had been careful. Um, in Wexford, it was considered that if you entertained the British army in your house, you put your house at great risk. Mm. And um, that if you didn't do that, the locals would know you didn't do that because you'd let them know you didn't do that. Lady Gregory, for example, she wrote three articles about the outrages committed by the Black and Tans anonymously for the nation in England. And she let it be known locally that she'd she had written these. Yeah, yeah. But that she also let it be known locally she wouldn't have the British army near her, the Tans were not coming to dinner. Yeah, yeah. So that um, her house was not burned. Yeah. Um, cool Park was not burned in the in the War of Independence, and of course, um, you know, Bowen's Court wasn't either. It wasn't, and I think it it probably wasn't burned because of her father's reputation yeah. of helping the local farmers to get title to their lands, which is very important. I mean, if you think under the Wyndham Land Acts of 1903, I mean, it's really relevant now in County Tipperary, for example. Um, you know, one and a half million acres or more, even was transferred to Irish farming families. You know, they got the title. Um, so the book, yeah. uh, uh, um, The Last September, enacts a sort of nightmare. It enacts a sort of unconscious it fear. Her nightmare. That, that this, that the, the British army, in the presence of Gerald, just for example, are coming too close, coming to the house too much. Oh, yeah. And somehow or other, they've made themselves vulnerable. Mm. And the very yeah. thing she, that they must have feared most, she must have feared most, yeah. that the locals would turn on them. Yeah. That that actually is, is what's dealt with in the book. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, book definitely. Is, the book is her dream life, her yeah. nightmare life. And in a sense, because of what happens towards the end of the novel, Lady Naylor is proved correct that Lesworth isn't a suitable person, you know, for her niece. Um, that he's trouble um, coming to the house so regularly. And Lady Naylor tells a lot of lies about him at the end. Um, that, you know, because she thought he was unsuitable for her niece Lois. Um, but, I mean, Molly, a lot of Anglo-Irish houses were also involved with the British Army because, of course, they were involved in the Army Remount Unit, which was a huge uh, part of the British Army. Um, if you think that by the 1917, the Army Remount Unit was responsible for 300,000 horses. 
they were so short of horses by the end of the First World War that they had to set up receiving stations in Texas and Kentucky um, to bring horses over to Ireland for kind of uh, schooling and training and that and finishing. Um, and also the interesting thing about it is that the houses and the domains rather than estates, the estates nearly all went because, you know, if you had estates of 25,000 or, you know, in the case of the Dukes of Leinster, Earls of Glaert, 50,000 acres, all of those estates were, were, were um, transferred in ownership under the Wyndham Land Acts. Um, but if you had a domain which was mainly woodland or a stud farm, it wasn't confiscated, right. even after the Land Commission was founded in 1923. So many of these, like Molly Keane's family, for example, kept going, training mm. horses, schooling horses. Mm. Um, but I mean, and, and indeed, sometimes for the army, even after independence, for the army remount units, you know, yeah. um, which had 400 officers, many of them masters of foxhounds from Ireland. Right. You know, so it was an incredibly social thing. And these farms and these families were so implicated in the life of the British Army yeah. that they were inevitably seen as legitimate targets, you know. Yeah, and um, we're talking about the book being published in 1929 and the book being set um, perhaps in 1921-22. Yeah. Um, the idea of those eight years um, have, I think, I think, two significance. One, that, of course, Elizabeth Bowen um, becomes a writer, mm. you know, in those eight years. Yeah, yeah. She moved from being a girl like Lois, perhaps insecure and only yeah. child. And drifting. And, and drifting to, 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 to becoming quite a figure in the London of that time. But also, of course, in, in certain countries at certain moments, we think Ukraine at the moment, this decade will be a very long decade. So people would talk about the great difference between, you know, 2022 and 2028. Yeah. In, for example, Ukraine. But think about Ireland that looking back at that time, it, it, it's almost an historical novel in the way she's presenting these people as though they're figures in history rather than contemporary characters. Oh, and, and that is actually a, an Anglo-Irish trick to present yourself as history rather than as living in the present moment. That's definitely one way of coping with um, uh, a situation in your life and in your situation socially that isn't quite coherent. So you can continue on by being a past rather than who you are in reality. That's a very Anglo-Irish thing. It was definitely in the feelings of people I knew, like Molly Keane and people like that, um, that the past was so real um, that it it continued. It, it, it you know, life wasn't contemporary, life was something in the past. But the 1920s were an important kind of moment of transition as well for women. In a sense, if you think of 1923, 24, there were other women like um, Vera Britton. Um, yeah, other, uh, the wonderful uh, testament of youth about the First World War, that great book. Um, Winifred Holtby. Uh, Enderbury Farm, she wrote that, and then South Riding. But all of those published their first books in 1923 and 24, which was interesting. Right. It was almost in the absence of men after the First World War, right. the women got a window to flower. And they did all through the 20s. Those who weren't dancing were writing. Um, I wonder if, if, if when Bowen was writing this book, she had two audiences in mind. One is an English audience. Um, 
and the other would were Frank O'Connor and Sean Fuelon. In other words, that a sense of these two boys. I mean, it's, I think it's fun that she has an old gardener called Donovan, mm. you know, Frank O'Connor's real name, and that the rebels in the book are called the Connors. Exactly. And that this couldn't be. Uh, I mean, it must have been fun writing down their yeah, his yeah. names. But that these two young writers who had c- come out of her own world, except, of course, from a completely different aspect of her own world, were now winning fame in London as young yeah. Irish rebels turned writers. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, I, there, there, there are parts of the book where she wants to show that I, I found this really fascinating and dramatic where she wants to show that, no, no, the Anglo-Irish were not English. Before oh, there no. were anything, they were not English. So that she has Lady Naylor getting the very best lines, which in the film version are really wonderfully delivered by Maggie Smith. Um, she said, um, of course, um, one cannot trace him. His mother, he said, lives in, in Surrey. And of course, you do know, don't you, what Surrey is. It says nothing, absolutely. Part of it is opposite. And he goes, practically no one who lives in Surrey ever seems to have been heard of. And and if one does hear of them, they have never heard of anybody else who lives in, really altogether, I think all English people are very difficult to trace. Oh, I mean, she must have had such... I mean, the day writing this must have been a very bright day yeah. for her because she realised she was Frank O'Connor and Sean O'Fuelan, you know, the young Irish writers that she was interested in. Yeah, yeah. We're going to love this because it was, you know, it was, it was, it was, and but also her for herself to show, I, I might sound like an English woman, and I'm living in London, but I'm not. I'm not one of you. I have something. I know something you don't know. You know, Virginia Woolf may have, you know, great antecedents and, you know, great snobberies, but I come from a place that you will never understand. And I understand, which is Ireland. And I can have Lady Naylor talk like this. Yeah. I mean, there's there's an immense amount of fun in this book, isn't there, at the expense of England? Well, there is a kind of knowing joking all the time going on at the expense of kind of innocent English bystanders, you know. Um, and Lady Naylor is absolutely brilliant. I do think she has actually some of the best lines in the book. Um, even the lies she tells at the end about how she treated um, Gerald, you know, the, the, the young lieutenant. Um, you know, she, she sort of said he loved coming here to the house and we loved having him. It was such a shock. And really, it's taken me terrible, you know, a long time to get over the, the shock of his death. He was so, And she wrote to his mother, um, telling her how happy he had been at yeah. Danielstown, how happy he'd been in Ireland. And, there's and his in- mother writes back to say, yeah, yeah. yes, but isn't, didn't he die for a glorious cause? Yeah, yeah. But Lady Naylor, Lady Naylor... No, I wasn't out. going to buy into that. She's not buying that for a moment. No, no. Yeah. But also, I mean, there's like some of the uncanny things that Elizabeth Bowen does. One of the most uncanny things is the very long sequence towards the end of the novel when they, d- they arrange a dance, a gramophone dance in the barracks, which is obviously the barracks in Mitchellstown or Fermoy, you know, um, probably Mitchellstown. Um, and it's all, it, the scene is written so intensely. Um, it's like a madness, a kind of ma- a late madness of a garrison that's not going to be there for very long more, you know. Um, and that was what was so good, I think, about Elizabeth Bowen, you know, she could uh, describe those situations of people who were placed where they shouldn't have been. You know, whether they were orphans who had been farmed out to some relatives or, you know, she was so good at that. And that must have come from her own personal life and feelings about her own situation. You know, I I suppose it's an interesting novel about history. But it's amazing um, how hostile 
in a way she places Daniel's town. It's not an idyllic place. It's constantly kind of brooding or an unwelcome presence in the landscape, you know. Yeah. Um, so she transfers her own absence of political understanding of what's happening. I mean, one of the interesting things about both Bowen and indeed Edith Somerville and Molly Keane is how they m um, misunderstand what's happening politically in terms of the revolution. They'd, you know, there's always a f just a few people, a few revolutionaries like the O'Connors or a few revolutionaries, uh, you know, as in a kind of Molly Keane's novels like Mad Puppet's Town, where Mad Puppet's Town is, is, you know, they come to burn Mad Puppet's Town. That's a 1934 novel by Molly Keane. But they had no notion of just how big the Sinn Féin IRA organisation was. You know, if you think of my own hometown of Capaquen, um, after, uh, you know, um, the great kind of Redmondite uh, campaigns of 1915, you know, nearly 200 men from the small town of Capaquen joined the, the Allied forces to fight against the perfidious Hun. Um, only 20 joined Sinn Féin. So, like, it was 10 to 1. And yet, if you, Capaquen was a small town, if you were to add Lismore, Tallow, Dungarvan, you know, Ring, Old Parish, all of these places, it's, such, it's, it's suddenly like you're talking about maybe 300 active volunteers working in an area. So the Anglo-Irish, while they knew and they would have known some of the people involved, and there are a number of times, in fact, there are five or six incidents in the last September where both Lois and Lady Naylor are conscious of the servants listening. Um, and so even when regimental notepaper, a letter is received in regimental notepaper, they hide that because that's information about where a regiment is placed, you know. So they're conscious of that threat, but I don't think they have any idea about the overwhelming numbers that are against them. You see, I think that's a brilliant point because out of that lack, out of not knowing, yeah. she manages to produce the book. In other words, if she was locked into the 1918, November 1918 election, the victory of Sinn Féin, the various factions, how this was going to play out, she would have written a political novel. She would. And the exactly. novel would be so filled with the detail of things. And um, what she does instead is she looks at um, just how useless these people were in that last September, just how dreamy they were, and just how, for example, Lady Naylor and Sir whatever Naylor, Sir Richard, yeah. Thank you. Um, they don't seem to ever have an actual conversation. They sort of pass one another by, mm. both emotionally and topographically, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, um, the, the, the couple who come to stay, the Montmorencys, oh, Montmorencys don't seem to have anything so at unhappy. all in common. And then there's Lawrence, who's completely in a dream. Yeah. And then there's Lois. So they're all... And then there's Marder, who arrives from nowhere and goes back to nowhere and may be engaged and may be lesbian, in fact. And who knows? And that all of them are wandering, as it were, missing, missing the point of each other all the time. The, 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 the most substantial thing in the book, besides the trees and the house, are, are the portraits. Mm. So when they have the great dinner... And they're all sort of separated from each other and no one quite knows what to say to each other because Lady Naylor doesn't want to discuss what's actually going on in the world Not because she probably knows more than the others yeah. because she's downstairs with the servants. The portraits seem to loom so large looking over them that that substance 
that substance, whereas the characters themselves are moving in a kind of shadow. But in, in that shadow, then, the figure of Lois emerges as though she could be in another novel. She's in, in a way, she's in Bowen's novel, The Death of the Heart. Mm. That's our young girl yeah. who's absolutely insecure, who doesn't know what she wants to be. She could become an artist. You know, she, she, she could fall in love with anyone she meets. She, she could, like, ma marriage is a thing. She isn't quite sure what it is, but she'd yeah. like to have some of it. Yeah. And of course, with all these soldiers around, she's clearly going to fall for one of them, as of course, in Jane Austen. The minute, the minute, you know, the, the, the regiment arrive nearby, what, in Pride and Prejudice, you know, someone is going to run off with the soldier. That's what you do with the soldier. You run off with him. And he's always unsuitable. Mm. And um, so, that, so that what she's doing is she's, she's, she's almost playing with the novel form. And I suppose the best version of that, or the, maybe the original version of it, is um, it's Stendhal's The Charterhouse of Parma, where um, Fabrice is, is deeply in love and he's wandering around Europe on his horse and he's just thinking about love. He could be a troubadour. He's just locked into love. But later on, he thinks that he was, he did hear a lot of noise one day and people going back and forth and he may have been in Waterloo and it may have been the right date for the Battle of Waterloo and he may in fact have witnessed the Battle of Waterloo but he didn't know it was called the Battle of Waterloo that day and he was busy thinking about love. And as the standard saying, if you think I'm going to give you, Tulsa, if you think I'm going to give you the Battle of Waterloo, go away, because Fabrice being in love is what I want to write about. Mm. And so she's playing with that idea that um, Lois, and, and it isn't though Lois's emotions are strong, they're just, they're just, they're, they're strong in, in that how vague and numinous and unnameable they are. Yeah, her, well, she has almost no agency in her life. You know, Lady Naylor is constantly trying to, planning her future for her. She's the one who tells her that uh, Gerald is unsuitable for her. Just, in fact, so unsuitable that it shouldn't even be discussed or thought about because um, he's absolutely nobody. No money. Uh, no money. Well, he's nobody, you see, which is a very important <laughs> thing. Um, but, I mean, she then, the whole idea that she's going to be in, maybe, an, maybe an artist because she has some talent in drawing and then she's registered kind of, you're not really sure whether she did that or whether uh, Lady Naylor arranged, all, it's all arranged for her anyway. And But even then, like, even art is not immune because, from revolution because, is it Mrs. Viermont re reminds people that, that, that these castes in the art school uh, could be hiding arms, you know, for the yes, IRA. Yes, yes, yes. Sort of, which is probably true, actually, yes. in Cork anyway. Um, but the thing is, it's, it's this kind of uh, circular insecurities about everything, even things that are physical, you know, even the sort of the dynamic feelings about the portraits, for example, you know, that the portraits are almost living things and that they lean into the kind of dining table. They almost become part of the, the consumption of yeah. thought at the dining table. Yeah. Like these, and the house is a living thing in Elizabeth Bowen, very much so. Um, like the house has these appearances which are kind of sentient, which are thinking appearances, as if the stones were kind of thinking mm. about what ha was happening. And families go from generation to, Anglo-Irish families go from generation to generation being worthy of the house, if you like, yeah. that they are kind of a disappointment to the house or a disappointment to the estate. But, you know, it's almost no different from the Trump family, you know, and Mario Largo in Florida, you know, but like, are they worthy of that place? You know, can you live up to that place? Like, it's always, it's always, 
in the end, it is nearly always about the family's interests, mm. their physical, mm. their financial and physical interests, and their standing in society. But but it is true in this case, isn't it, that that because this is an mm. Irish novel. It has a gothic edge to it. In other words, these characters are slightly doomed. They're, they're sort of playing out a game in which, in, in which, in which death plays a very large part. In other words, mm. that, that Lois looks, that every time everyone sees her, when the Montmorencis come say, Laura, look, look, she's like Laura. Mm. They think she's, she is Laura and her dead mother really looms large in, 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 in everyone else's version of her. And it's significant that Montmorencis have no children and the Nailers have no children, that somehow that this is the end of their world. And we're going to watch it burn, but before it burns, we're going to watch its doom. We're going to watch it sort of slowly everyone realizing somehow that the ancestors' power over them is almost complete now and that there won't be a next generation, that Lawrence will go off to Oxford, that Lois will go anywhere she wants, but the house itself, even before it burns, is, is sort of dead. And all the characters are operating in a sort of death in life in the way they move, mm. in the way, for example, I mean, tiny details. I, 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 I couldn't get away with it if I tried it, to have two bookcases that are locked and no one can find the key. Mm. And if you put that in a novel, I'd say, no, 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 really come there, get that out of your novel, because like, but, but this, but this, but, but, but you believe this here. This, this house is sort of, it, it's coming to an end. Think, the key is yeah. important in the kitchen yeah. garden yeah. as well, in that the, the key, the kitchen garden, the kitchen garden, because of course it has valuable fruit and all these kind of things um, that the ordinary peasantry might need. Um, it's always locked. Yes, you locking, can't find locking the, key the garden. There's a moment when uh, yes, when and Libby Thompson. Yeah. She wants to bring Libby Thompson. Who Libby Thompson like is the most hilarious character in the book in that she's one of those people you know who's never welcome in the house really that like <laughs> that they're a complete nuisance when they turn up and they hang on hoping they'll be asked to stay for lunch um, mm. and like they ask for inappropriate things they say ridiculous things uh, I mean the car like she's just an annoying like she's one of the annoying people and simply annoying Livy Thompson but then she becomes interesting because she has this um meeting in the Imperial Hotel. Um, Which is pretty well yeah, done, isn't it? Brilliantly yeah, done. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Sees it. yeah, yeah, and she thinks she's having this secret meeting with yeah. her. But and it is interesting, but I mean, she, a bit like Marda, like, thinks of engagement as a, a second chance in a way. You yeah. know, a romance is saying that, well, as Marda sort of, uh, and Elizabeth Bourne writes, Marda was thinking of the engagement ring is a passport at any frontier. Yeah. And I was sort of like, it was a... An offer of a new life. Yeah. You know. But, but Bone <laughs> won't go as far as giving them a marriage. You know, it's the engagement no. will be the thing. No. No, we, we need to talk urgently, really, before we go any further about the style. Because by, before this is anything else, it's a novel written in style. It draws Absolutely. attention to itself constantly. Absolutely. I mean, semicolons, Tom, let's talk about mm. them. I mean, I mean, just, just take this. This is, this is page. This is, this is really just a, what is it? It's, it's just very early on. They swept in. Well, all of us could write that. I mean, that's what they did. They arrived in the car and then they swept in. They swept in semicolon. Their exclamations constricted suddenly, filling the hall. So obviously from outside, they're sort of loud, constricted suddenly. There was so much to say after 12 years, another colon this time, mm -hmm. they all seemed powerless. And she does this a lot where you think the next sentence is going to be a completion of the last one. And instead it darts off somewhere. Uh, I mean, as though the wind changes suddenly. I mean, there was so much to say after 12 years. When you go to the next sentence, they, they, you know, Lady Nello could not stop talking or they, they didn't know where to begin. 
No, no, they all seemed powerless. Then, then Lois hesitated, went in after them as nobody noticed, came out again. The car with the luggage, and it goes on. Now, the house, we're going to watch the house. She yawned and looked out over the sweep to the lawn beyond, where little tufts of shadow pricked like reeds from water out of the flat gold light. Mm. Wow, that's a pretty complex vision, isn't it? L listen to it again, where little tufts of shadow, this, this is the lawn, pricked like reeds from water out of the flat gold light. Beyond the sunk fence, six carry cows followed each other across with wading steps and stood under a lime tree. All the way up to the house, the windows were open. Light came diagonally from window to window through corner rooms. This whole idea of the, of the architecture. And then two stories up, she could have heard a curtain rustle, but the mansion piled itself up in silence over the Montmorency's voices, mm. as though the house itself is not, not just a living thing, it's a throbbing thing, it's an active yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And, Very and like Bonescourt, how she, how she feels about Bonescourt. But she, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about, and I suppose it is in E.M. Foster as well, is the way she can describe physical detail, you know. I mean, even when is it Mrs. Veermont comes into a room and she talks about Mrs. Veermont sitting in a wicker chair and she says, the wicker chair disgusted her briefly before settling. Yes. And that's exactly what a wicker chair would sound like. Yes. But that's uh, what she does. The, the distant ceiling imposed on consciousness its blank white oblong. That's pretty good. Meaning there was, a, there, was, there, was a, there was a ceiling. It was white. It was oblong. And, you know, it did affect you in the room. But she, but it's imposed on consciousness. It's blank white oblong. I mean, mm. that's pretty good. You can put it in a poem. It's blank Easily. white oblong. Would be a lovely a fine line, stanza, a fine it? half line. Anyway, um, of a poem. And a pellucid silence distilled from a hundred and fifty years of conversation. It's as though the dead are not dead. So the dead are hanging around. Bits of what they've what they said before um, are being heard. Into this silence, voices went up in stately attenuation. Now, the only person who's getting away with this in this year is Virginia Woolf. This idea of voices going up in stately attenuation. Mm. And, then, um, brief, yeah. and then now there were no voices. Miss, Mrs. Montmorency and Lawrence sat looking away from each other. And Woolf can do that too, where she can have an extraordinary sentence filled with strange words and then go into a plain descriptive. Mrs. Montmorency and Lawrence sat looking away from one another. So that as well as being an Anglo-Irish novelist in London, She's also some, and being acutely alert to Frank O'Connor and Sean Fuelon. She had an affair with Sean Fuelon. In fact, she was in bed with Sean Fuelon when the Second World War broke out. Um, her husband called up from the Foreign Office and she was in bed with Sean Fuelon. Um, but that's just an aside. Um, that, you know, you know, she's acutely conscious of her own difference from English people. But yet, there, there must have been an extraordinary connection which, of, of her. Well, when she read Virginia Woolf, she well, was really paying attention. Well, the high Mandarin prose. High like, Mandarin prose. Which is of, of kind of that world, you know, of, of, of Ian Foster and, and Virginia Woolf. Um, there is something else there, isn't it? Though it's in Catherine Mansfield and it's well, in Woolf. That is her, true. Of describing picnics, tennis parties, people yeah. coming in and out of rooms and, and all the time as though the air itself is alive. There's mm. not just the person wearing colour, mm. the air itself. You know, it's the, a young world. It's interesting like that. It, it is the remembered world of people who were very young. Uh, we tend to forget that, that like she was quite young. She was a young novelist. She wasn't a, a sort of recollecting in the maturity of her 80s or something like that, like an elderly Anglo-Irish novelist. She was a young person. 
So she was also young and excited enough about the texture of prose. And I think that is one of the incredible things about her. It's the texture of her prose writing that is so interesting. You could say, okay, maybe it's a bit self-indulgent, all those uh, colons and semicolons. But she's trying to create an enchantment, you know, an enchantment or an enchanting effect so that the reading of prose as an experience becomes something physical, which is a very adolescent, young kind of feeling about words and language. So in, in, it's true what you said earlier, that she's almost a poet, but not writing poetry. You know, she's not interested in that. She's too interested in character to be writing poetry. Um, it's characters and how characters lie to each other or remain in the world unformed. That's what's important to her, you know. Um, are never quite cohering. That's like, it, it, it's, it's, it's all over the novel. Like she, she, you know, an emotional kind of strain, as she says, was what Lois had, an emotional kind of strain. But the landscape and the war itself and Ireland was also straying emotionally at that point as well. So you have like page 176 there in the novel. I don't know if it's 176 in, in yours, you know, towards the end. Yeah. Um, where are we here now? Yeah. She would have been surprised to have seen him. This is Gerald. Yeah. At the same time, at yeah. the same moment, at this same moment, step across to the island and stand there rootedly. And he, his whereabouts, even so much as guessed at, would have been quite at her mercy. For to have followed the stream to this loneliest reach, beyond the plantation wall, where the meadow's hedge trailed unknown blackberries over the water, was not to have walked, to have strolled even, but to have betrayed oneself in an emotional kind of strain. Uh, you know, so the estate and domain is holding them together psychologically. Now, what are we going to do about this? That um, the way that she even gets Mr. Connors to speak is, is just slightly, her ear is slightly off for Irish speech. It is, yeah. And the number what of she's serv- hearing. And the number of servants who are mentioned in passing, we realise they're gardeners, they're actual gardeners. There's clearly, there's, there's a cook, there's a, there's a servant who always seems to, you know, but the number of servants who are barely mentioned, the fact that the Connorses are there, Mrs. Connors is in bed, Mr. Connors is wandering around, the son is, a, um, is, is on the run, the son's wife is mentioned. But the Anglo-Irish are given an extraordinary amount of, in, in a way, dense, textured description of prose, of their prose, their motives, their clothes, their relationship to history, their, their relationship to the future, even as, as what the young people might do. That there, there is an argument you made, isn't there, that this is an extraordinary novel about a privileged class in their last September, and that the other class, the underclass, are barely imagined what they're about to take over and that she, and that she may or may not be fully aware of what she's doing in her own book. Yeah, which well, is, she, you know. although I must say she is accurately describing Anglo-Irish life, you know, in that the servants are meant to be invisible. They should have most of their work, like laying new fires, cleaning all the major furniture, done before the Anglo-Irish, after they've read the daily letters, which have just arrived, say, after breakfast and read the, the morning poster, the Irish Times, by the time the aristocratic family or Anglo-Irish family are wandering the house, most of the servants should definitely be gone. 
And if they are moving about the house, say, from floor to floor, they're using the back stairs, which is the service stairs. They'll only see them if they come in, in, in or out through the baize doors that always separated the, mm. the back stairs from the front yeah, stairs. Th- th- so they, then, were, they had a separate life. Yeah, but this, but this would be true in an English novel too. It's, it's in Nancy Mitford. It's in all those books. But um, the difference here is that this crowd is about to take over, take over. That you don't, the cook is clearly, you know, everyone knows the, everyone knows the Connors. And so there's a funny moment when this idea of divided loyalty, when Connors is finally caught and everyone thinks this should be a wonderful occasion for celebration. Oh, so Richard, Richard so Naylor, Richard, so Richard Richard Naylor is, is furious. Is, is really, yeah. because they're his neighbours and because he lives in, he, he lives in proximity to them. Yeah, yeah, and he knows that that will cause tension, which has never been there before, between the Connors and the estate. Um, and I mean, he also is aware, you know, he is aware, as Lewis is, that uh, uh, Connor's mother is dying, you know, which is an important thing too. Um, and he shows sympathy for her and he inquires, as Lois does, after her health. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's interesting that he, Sir Richard seems to have the most kind of relationships with the people of the, the neighbourhood knows most about them. And for that reason, he's the very person who doesn't want to know any more. Yes, yes. You know, he knows enough, doesn't want to know specifics about them because he might have, as a loyal person, he might have to report those specifics. Yeah. Whether he has just left home. You know, three of the families who were tenants have left, three of the men from those families have left home. Well, that's obviously an indication that there's an IRA manoeuvre being planned. Yes. You know, so that's military information. Now, it must have been tempting, or was it, for her to write a brutal IRA sequence, a scene where they really come in and kick things round, the IRA people. Yeah. I mean, we get that happening with the British. We, we don't see it as a scene, but we hear about it. In other words, they come into the, almost to the dance to say, oh, we're being told now to go to houses where there are women and, and you know, check the beds. And, you know, so yeah. that's what they're doing. Well, remember but, when Lois, I mean, it is interesting their relationship with the military in that the, the Anglo-Irish, or certainly the, the Nailers um, of Danielstown, they didn't really, while they were loyal and respected, obviously, the military tradition and that, they didn't really like, in particular, the activities of the Black and Tans. In fact, they were quite afraid of the Black and Tans. There's one great scene where, um, is it Marda and Lothar, uh, they hear a lorry full of black and tans in the distance oh, yeah. and they actually drive down uh, or up uh, a side road to avoid them. Yeah. And I love uh, what Lois is thinking like that. Um, if And they're hoping that they won't be noticed by the black and tans because if the blackest, black and tans noticed one hiding, they could be very sarcastic. <laughs> Which I thought was yeah, brilliant, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. They would shoot you if you were yeah, Irish yeah. but they'd be sarcastic if yeah, you were yeah. Anglo-Irish. Um, I, I, I was interested in, um, in the same way as the locked bookcases seem to me to mean something. You know, you're often in a novel you could just put in a single detail and that's enough to suggest a whole thing. There was no one is able to get to those books. People are not reading them. Not at all. And something, you know. But the other one that I think is significant is the um, when an IRA man comes and he takes a pair of shoes and a watch, mm. he sends back the watch. Mm. In other words, these people don't steal. It's a tiny detail, yeah. but it suggests a great deal. And it's, and it's Sir yeah. Richard's response, yeah, yeah. He, you know, th- 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 this this is an insurgency. But, but it's somehow... And the watch uh, was working perfectly. Yeah, and the watch... Is, and Sir Richard right. says, that tells you something. Yes. Which is yes. say what it tells you. Yeah. But yeah. he didn't damage the watch. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was cared for. 
Yeah. Um, and in IRA. a way, that's her tribute to the Ireland that, that emerged yeah, soon yeah. afterwards yeah, yeah. And, she's, and that she's writing all Absolutely. these years later. Thank you very much, Tom, and thank you very much for coming, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.